Good morning, everyone, and welcome to church today on Sunday, the 21st of June, 2020. As we begin our service of worship this morning, we remind ourselves of the incredible scale of Christ's love for us, the church of Jesus Christ. Christ loved the church so much that he died for us, his bride. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Today we worship as part of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, part of the Holy Catholic Church, part of the bride for whom Jesus died. Let's draw near, isolated but together, to worship the Lord. As we have sung God's praise, we now bow before him in prayer. Let us pray. Father God, our hearts are filled with thankfulness today for your amazing grace towards us. What is man and woman that you are mindful of us? You stoop down to bless us. And this morning we praise you for your condescension towards us, for how the Holy Spirit influences us and assists us, for how we receive help in our prayers, 
for the privilege of Christian servants and for the thoughts of heaven that thrill us in the darkest day. Lord God, we praise you for daily provision and daily blessing and for raising us to life from spiritual death. Today, we don't have to look to the favor or praise of men because, Lord God, the favor of God is better by far than all the praises of this harlot Babylon world. And yet, even though we are recipients of your amazing grace, we often treat it like it means nothing. Lord, instead of constant praise, sometimes we barely give you a single thought. Lord God, we ask that today you would humble us, that you would remind us constantly of the scale of Christ's love for us. The bridegroom died for his bride so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Lord God, knowing the truth of this, we will not boast in anything or anyone other than Christ. And we pray this morning as he has taught us. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, boys and girls. Time for the children's address. Good to see you. Come a wee bit closer as always, because today we are continuing our walk through the book of Revelation. We've heard much in this book about the Lord Jesus Christ, many names and many titles that we've got for him. And there is one more today that we're going to look at in the Apocalypse of John. Boys and girls, in the passage today, we... Tis I, in the best of days, my bearded friend, tis a joy to see you again. I come with wonderful news. Sir Night Knight, it's good to see you happy again, my old friend. Come, please, what's your good news? Queen Eden of Grove and I are getting married. Wow. Uh... Congratulations, uh, that's good news. Wow, uh, yeah. Yes, I have been on cloud nine ever since. What changed her mind? I took her to my new castle. I made her a fine Italian meal and I told her my new joke. Knock, knock, he's there, night. Night who? Night, night, go to bed. <laughs> That's a lot better. Thank you. So your new joke changed her mind? No, I gave her a tour of my castle and she fell in love. She saw my swimming pool, my beautiful garden, my many servants, and my room filled to the ceiling with gold. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 uh, night, night. She changed her mind after she had seen the room full of gold? No, no, 
She loves me. I'm sure the room filled with gold isn't that important. But my dear friend, I have come to ask you a question. Ask me anything. My love, my beauty, my sweet, the fairest of them all, the wise Senate! Congratulations, Your Majesty. Why are we here, Sir Knight Knight? I have many appointments. My love, my beauty, my sweet, the rose in my garden. I came here today to tell Scott the good news. And Scott, we would like you to marry us. For the record, I do not. But my love, if it were not for the advice of my friend Scott, we would not be here today. If you had listened to your friend Scott, I would be eating greasy KFC chicken for the rest of my life. That may be true, my love, but last week I was lost. I was devastated. I thought I'd lost you forever. I was so upset, I even applied to be a Presbyterian minister. Steady. Apologies, my friend. But it is true, my queen. Without Scott's advice, I would never have returned to Tullybeg Fort, and we would not be here today. Is this true, scruffy man? I think so. Well, my future husband, tell me, what was this advice? I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. That is foolish advice. No, no, my love. I will never forget Scott's advice. It was wonderful, profound, deep, intelligent, inspirational. Silence! Tell me the advice. What did he say? He looked me in the eye. He took a deep breath. <gasps> he stroked his beard. He rubbed his chin. Silence! What is the advice? He said, it could be worse. That's it? You want him to marry us because he said, it could be worse? Yes, I do. He is a man full of wisdom. He is a scruffy man full of donuts. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on a second, Your Majesty. I'm standing right here. I can hear everything you say. You are not very nice. Thank you. It wasn't a compliment. C'est la vie, but I am tired of this foolishness. I have an appointment at Isabella Page where I will be buying my wedding dress. Come, my love. But we must decide about Scott, my love. It would mean so much to me if he could marry us. Hmm. Very well, but only on certain conditions. Will you conduct the service in Latin, s'il vous plaît? I can't speak Latin. Will you shave your beard? Nope. Mrs. Woodburn loves it. She calls me Mr. Snugglebear. <laughs> Will you preach for only five minutes? Sorry, nope. Will you become a Baptist? Baptist? No, I'm Reformed. I'm a Presbyterian. But here, wait a second, thinking about Presbyterianism and the Reformed faith, John Calvin was French. And? Well, he's one of your own countrymen. No, I am not French. You're not French? You're not French? No, I am from Drummondness. Are you free next week? Yep. Fine. 
then be here next week at 11.15 and wear something nice. Such wonderful news. Come, Sir Knight, and bring your bag of gold. Yes, my love. Huzzah! Knight, knight, away! Bye, bye, bye. See you soon. Come again. Yep, yep. As Bell Page that way. Yep, yep, yep. There you go. See you later. Wowzers, boys and girls. Didn't see that coming. But there you go. It seems like next week we've got a wedding on our hands. I just hope Sir Night Night knows what he is letting himself in for. But boys and girls, it's convenient that they have come today with their good news because today I want to tell you another title that is given to the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible and that we read about in the book of Revelation. Boys and girls, in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7, it tells us, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. In Revelation 19 and verse 7, we read about the marriage of the Lamb, who is Jesus, and his bride, who is the church. Boys and girls, if you have ever been to a wedding, if you have ever been a, a flower girl or a bridesmaid or a page boy or done a reading at a wedding, then you know what it's all about. A man and a woman fall in love. They come to a church like this. They stand up at the front and they promise to love each other forevermore. Boys and girls, that's what we call marriage. Between one man and one woman to the exclusion of everybody else for the rest of their life. Boys and girls, isn't it amazing that in the book of Revelation and indeed in loads of other places through the Bible, that that's the picture that we are given about the relationship between Jesus and the church. Boys and girls, that's how much you and me are loved. When we have trusted Jesus, we become part of the church called the bride. And if you were listening right at the start of the service, then you will have heard some verses from Ephesians chapter 5 about how much the bride is loved. In that passage, a man called Paul tells human husbands, a, a husband like me, he tells human husbands that they have to love their wives the way that Jesus loved his church. Boys and girls, that's how much we are loved. Jesus loved us so much that he laid down his life for his bride, the church. Boys and girls, today, Another name, another wonderful title for Jesus is the bridegroom. And in this passage in Revelation 19, we read about the wonderful marriage and the supper of the Lamb. Boys and girls, I can't wait for that day. It is going to be amazing when we are with Jesus forever, ever, 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 ever more. That's what we're hoping for. That's the picture. Not a day that we'll all come up to the front of a church wearing fancy clothes and then we'll go and eat and drink and have a wonderful time. Not a day like that, but a day that we will see Jesus with our own two eyes. A day that we will see just how much he treasures us. A day that we will be with God forevermore. Boys and girls, that day is coming. The bridegroom who is Jesus, is coming. And today, if we don't know Jesus, if we haven't trusted him, maybe, boys and girls, your granny hasn't, maybe your friend next door hasn't, maybe you haven't. Boys and girls, it's time to take the invitation to the wedding supper, the marriage feast of Jesus. It's time to believe in the bridegroom. And it's time to become part of his bride. Jesus is the bridegroom who laid down his life for his bride, the church. Apocalypse, boys and girls, let's praise him.
through the book of Revelation over these past lot of weeks and today we come to Revelation chapter 21 and by God's grace next week we come to the very last chapter and we finish our walk through this wonderful book. Uh, I hope it has been a blessing to you. I hope you've learned something. I hope you've been encouraged. I hope uh, the honesty of this book has shone forward and uh, the Lord does not promise us bright sunshine for the rest of our days. The days in front of us indeed are dark and if we think the pandemic has been bad then there are worse days to come. But as we get to the final two chapters of this book there are words of hope. We speak of home, we speak of heaven, we speak of how it is all going to come to a close. And this is the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. 
On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, and the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, and the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. And we thank God for his precious word. Let us pray. Father God, we have heard wonderful things in your precious word. We thank you for them. Already we have heard much as we have read our way through this passage. But now, Lord God, I pray that you would take my words and use them as they are preached that they would be words of encouragement and challenge, words of truth, words of grace and words of mercy, words of the gospel and words of Christ. Father, speak and write this truth on our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When reminiscing, we often remember the past with rose-tinted spectacles. We often look back to the 90s, to the 80s, to the 70s, to whatever decade you love the most. We look back to it and we believe that everything was better in those days. The music was better. The food was better. The politicians were better. The nation was better. Everything was better, stronger, more wonderful. And there's that little part of us that longs for the days to be back in 1954 sitting on your granny's knee at the old farm. Nothing beats the old days, the golden days. Very few of us, though, will ever sit down and with great hope look each other in the eye and say, oh, I can't wait until 10 years. I can't wait until 30 years go by. I can't wait to 50 years. I'm looking forward so much to the advance of human progress. I'm looking forward to the science and I'm looking forward to humans going to Mars and I'm looking forward with great expectation to everything that is to come. Maybe you're different, but I know in my own soul that I look back with joy and look forward with trepidation. And indeed, as I was preparing myself to come and preach here today, I read a report that says the national debt for our great nation stands at now two trillion pounds. Two trillion pounds. Imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine how that is going to be paid back. Imagine that debt, that, that absolute lumbering, large, giant debt around the neck of this nation for generations to come. That's the reality. And so when we look forward, usually it's not with a smile on our face. Usually it's not with great joy. Usually it's with the assumption 
that if things are pretty wicked today, they're only going to get worse. But folks, today I'm not here to help you solve the debt crisis. I don't come to try and predict the future and to say, I wonder who will win the presidential election in a few months. I wonder what Boris is going to do next. None of that is the topic of discussion today. But I do come before you to preach a sermon about a future hope. A future hope that centers around Christ and centers around a place, a place that by faith you and I are going to be. You see, we may not be confident about the state of our nation, but we can be absolutely confident about our eternal destination because in Christ we are saved and in Christ we are bound for glory. Imagine for a second, if you will, living forevermore in a place where your doors are open all night and no one ever comes in to trouble you. Imagine, if you will, a place where you can let your children go and play outside and not a worried thought would ever come over your wee mind. Imagine a place, uh, imagine a city that didn't require any apprentice boys to shut the gates because the gates never had to close. Imagine such a place. And my friends, if you are just now thinking about Port Ballantrae, then catch yourself on. Because the place that I'm talking about is heaven. Over these past weeks, we have considered the great enemy of Christ, the great enemy of the church. And last week, we met Satan getting his comeuppance and everything coming to a close and judgment being poured out on him. And as the book of Revelation closes, it does so with two extraordinarily, wonderfully encouraging chapters about our hope, about our certainty, about the city with foundations whose designer and builder is God. It speaks about our heavenly hope. And I must admit, I have been excited to get up to preach this to you today. I have been getting all G'd up about it and looking forward to it because I know at times when you're up here warning about the enemy and warning about his strategies, they can be sermons that that cause us to maybe wonder and doubt and worry and fear. But see, today, it's all of grace. It's all of Jesus and it's all of heaven. And I pray, although I'll not come round and and check if this is the case, but I pray that this sermon today, and indeed its sister sermon next week, give you great delight and great joy in your wee heart. Because it's about our home. This passage begins in Revelation 21 with John saying in verse 1, A new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. John sees the the change of all things. John sees the reality that in the end of days, this earth will be burnt with fire and it will be renewed and restored and it will be eaten again on this earth. There is our hope. See, sometimes when we think of, of what is to come, when we think of death and we think of heaven, we think of floating about, disembodied on a cloud. There are angels singing somewhere. They're eating Philadelphia cheese. And Peter is at the gate, and somehow he's got all the power and authority to let you in or not. But my friends, those images have very little to do with the scriptural picture. We will talk later about what happens to us if we were to die today before Christ returns But this passage here speaks about what it is going to be like when he has returned and when he has made all things new. You see, as believers, we can expect not to float about disembodied forevermore, but to live and walk and talk and eat and drink and fellowship with one another and fellowship with the Lord here on a renewed heavens and a new earth. That's the picture that we see here. When Jesus comes back, he makes all things new. John looks and he sees it. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There's no more sea and everything is made new. It's no wonder that Paul writes in Romans 8 and verse 9 that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation today is in bondage and creation waits eagerly for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that return is surely coming. And when Jesus comes back, it is to sit on the great white throne of judgment. But after that, my brothers and sisters, we stand again. Body and soul reunited. We stand again on an earth that is glorious. This is our heritage. This is our home. It is this exact thing that Peter is talking about in his second letter. In chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That is going to happen. That is coming. The Lord returns and not only does he make us new, not only do we stand again, but in a very wonderful way, this world stands again. Eden is restored. And if we don't believe that, well, as this passage continues, John looks and he sees the holy city, the the new Jerusalem. He sees the church. We'll speak about that more in a second. But he sees the church coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There's that heavenly language again, that that language of the wedding feast of the Lamb. There's the language that we can look forward to, Christ the bridegroom, the church the bride, and we have that fellowship forevermore. And then John hears a loud voice in verse 3 from the throne, and it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, I know many of you are listening to this today, and and frankly, if you're listening to it, I'm thankful for that. I don't care what denomination you are. I don't care what label you attach to yourself. But when I come across a verse like this, I realize exactly why I am Reformed, why I am Presbyterian, because I hold to a, a covenantal view of Scripture. And some will argue against that. Some will point the finger and say it's nonsense and it's not to be listened to. But here again is covenantal language. All the way from Genesis and here in Revelation we have this language to describe the relationship between God and his people. And all the way through the scriptures the message is the same. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be your God. You will be my people. Here it is. Here it is, the covenant of grace all comes together and it rests around this blessed relationship between the Lord and his people. Eden restored, the the covenant fulfilled, the old has gone. Verse 4 tells us that. When this day comes, standing with raised bodies and this new heaven and this new earth having that wonderful, fulfilling covenant relationship with the Lord, We read what he will do. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, we're told in verse 4. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, that is M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, rather than mourning time. There'll not be any mourning, not standing at graveyards. No crying, no pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. How many of you listening to this just want that verse to come true today how many of you are sitting there and your eye back is mustard your knee is sore you knelt down the garden the other week to pull weeds in and you had to be rescued by your next door neighbor you couldn't get back up how many of you go to bed at night and the last thing you think about is that loved one of yours who died how many of you wake up in the morning and the first thing you think about is, is that pain and that hurt that you still feel from that relationship that is in tatters. We know what it is to be human. And we know that it is weakness. And we know that this earth and our lives are blighted by sin. But here in this glorious passage, we are told that the former things are gone. They are done away with. The Lord comes and and makes everything new. He says that in verse 5. Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, he says. These words are trustworthy and true. It is going to take place. The Lord has promised it and he does not break his promise. He is a covenant God and he makes this promise here that all things will be made new and all of this old stuff will go and there will be no more place for any of it. It is done, we read in verse 6. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That means the beginning and the end. It's the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Here is the grace of God to the one who conquers, he says in verse 7. You will have this heavenly reality as your heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. There's the covenant language once again. Here's the Lord, the covenant Lord speaking covenantally to us. 
to the one who overcomes. And that doesn't mean to, to the one who, who somehow keeps on working to the very end, to the one who does enough good things to the very end. It speaks of the one who has called upon and received Jesus Christ by faith. That one, sins forgiven, declared righteous, sanctified, made holy, redeemed, saved, raised to life, their heritage, their heritage is glory. See, often when it comes to heritage, it causes fighting and roaring, doesn't it? You're out, Granda, you thought you and him were best mates. You thought you were guaranteed to get the farm. And what happened when he popped his clogs? The farm went to his nephew. What was that about? What did he do that for? Well, your granny calls you around and she says, you know, hopefully I have a few years left in me, but I just want you to know before I go, you can have the house and, and you can have the caravan and you, my love, well, you can have whatever you find in the fridge. What's that about? Not fair. How many times do families fight and argue over wills and heritage? But here, none are going to be disappointed. No child of God is going to be left with an empty belly or, or thirst. No child of God is going to receive this heritage and say, well, it wasn't really worth it. Oh, my brothers and sisters, the glory of heaven. Not this cloud existence, but raised physical bodies on this earth without sin and with Jesus. May that day come and come soon. But of course, it is not the heritage for everyone. As we read in this passage, whilst there are many things that we can look forward to uh, in glory and many things that we're going to rejoice in, there will be much that isn't there. Verse 8, we read that the cowardly won't be there, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers won't be there, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, none of them will be there because their portion, says this passage in verse 8, is the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Again, even in a, in a chapter filled with the grace of God, we, we read about this. There's a, a grace-filled warning to us because as we read about the glory of heaven, as we maybe get a little thirst for it, also the Lord reminds us that you do not see it if you are a Christ rejecter. See, in this passage, we have already read that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more sea. Read verse 1, and at the end of it, you will see exactly that. And you think, well, well what, what's wrong with the sea? I like to paddle at Port Rush, and I like to go out in a boat with my great-uncle Sammy. What's, what's wrong with the sea? In this passage, in this book, in, in the Bible as a whole, in the book of Daniel, for example, the sea is a place of chaos. From out of the sea comes great evil. We've met the beast from the sea. And so here we read that there's no more sea, there's no more place in the renewed heaven and the new earth for sin and for the agents of evil. There's no more room for Satan or the beast or the false prophet. The city of God that is coming down is called Jerusalem and not Babylon. And there is no place for those who die in their sins and die rejecting Christ. No place. See, my friends, every one of us, I think, I hope, I expect, every one of us wants to go to heaven. And even as I hear many people speaking, I, I realize that everybody believes that they're going to heaven, every single one. When I do funerals, I'm told, ah, oh, Granda was a great fella, never knocked on the door of the church, wasn't a Christian, but I'm sure he's up there looking down on us. I hope he is. I hope Granda did business with the Lord in his dying moments. But my friends, why would you leave it that late? Why would you wait until the last moments of life? Why would you wait until that moment that you think and expect you're going to get? You know, you're, you're 98 and you're in your deathbed and all the families around you, we all want a, a day like that. And you're handing out Werther's original sweets to all your loved ones. It's going to be lovely and magical and people will cry and the dog will be crying as well. But what if you die today? Utterly unexpectedly. You went to take your next breath and suddenly you were gone. 
You see, often that's life. That's how we finish. That's death. And here this passage tells us that the one who dies in that state, Christless, the one who dies having rejected Jesus and refusing to bend the knee to Jesus, and that's a, a very controversial thing at the minute, isn't it? And politicians in trouble this week about bending the knee. My friends, you must bend the knee to Jesus. You must repent and you must put your faith in Christ because if you do not, then your place is not heaven, but it is the fire and sulfur-filled lake, which is the second death. Believe, my friends, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. But you see, for me, for my house, we trust the Lord. And because of that, we, with Peter, can can say that we are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, 2 Peter 3 and verse 12. Because we are longing for and looking for to the new heavens and the, the new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's the Christian's hope, a forever home where sin is gone and righteousness dwells. John looks, and this is what he sees. And one of the seven angels who we've met before, he had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues, spoke to John, verse 9, and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. In other words, says this angel, I will show you the church. That's that imagery, the bridegroom and the bride. Christ lays down his life for his wife, the bride. And so John in verse 10 is carried away in the spirit to a great high mountain and he has shown the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Here again we see the same imagery. We met the city of man, Babylon, and here is the city of God, the church of Jesus Christ, not called Babylon, but called Jerusalem. So the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the church of Jesus Christ, comes down out of heaven. The dwelling place of God is with man. We are coming together. All things are being made new. The final situation has been put into place. And look at the church. Often in this world, the church is despised and rejected. But look at her here. In verse 11, we're told that she had the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Can you imagine this glorious image? Can you imagine the, 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 the beauty of it? Can you imagine gazing upon it? By faith, you are part of it. The beauty shines out. Suddenly, all things made new. And suddenly, the church of Jesus Christ, the city of God, no longer weak and despised and rejected and hated and persecuted and under the boot of Antichrist and the Antichrist. None of that anymore. But instead, the beauty of the bride. The beauty of the bride. Beauty of the one for whom Christ died is on visible display in this brand new world. And then the bride is described in verse 12. We're told that it had a great high wall, 12 gates. And at the 12 gates, there were 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And, and again, the number 12. Hopefully by this stage, you, you know what I'm going to say. The number 12 in the book of Revelation, you, you start to think, the church, the church, the church. Because here we, we see that on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, Israel were described, inscribed. Sorry, I'm, I'm all excited and I can't speak. But the names of the 12 tribes are there, written on the 12 gates. And then later in verse 14, we read about the walls of the city. They had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. See, here is the church, and again, biblical imagery hopefully comes flooding back because the city of God, the church of Jesus Christ, isn't split into Jew and Gentile, but instead the, the two have become one through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is not a, a little blip in history, and the plan is all about ethnic Israel. Anyone who has ever been saved is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The 12 plus the 12 equals 24. And the church of Jesus Christ here takes her place as the new Jerusalem. 
Paul says this in Ephesians 2 and verse 19 to 21. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Here is the church and on the walls and on the gates We have these names written to remind us this is who Christ died for. From the beginning to the end, for everyone who has ever called upon the name of the Lord, whether from a Jewish background or a Gentile background, everyone that has ever called in faith is received by faith and redeemed and saved. And here they are. This is their eternal destination. The place that they will lay their heads forevermore with Jesus at the center of it. This is our hope. This is our hope. And this church, this beautiful bride coming down from glory, it is from every corner of the world. I mentioned last week about how images of Jesus should not be made. And I mentioned in passing that usually when they are and usually when we see them in this part of the world, Jesus looks like us. He's got white skin. But my friends, that does not help us. If you think today that that our God is a God for the whites and just the whites, what nonsense you have believed. We are living in a day and age where the guilt and the sin of racism spreads and burns all across this world. People are divided along lines of race. But here, there's no division. We read in verse 13 that on the east there were three gates, on the north there were three gates, on the south there were three gates, and on the west there were three gates. In Revelation, the number four denotes the four points of the compass. There are gates on every corner of the great city, north, south, east, and west, and they are there, and the gates are open because the gospel is open to all who would believe. We do not preach a gospel just for the Europeans or just for the Asians or just for the Africans, but we preach a gospel for all who would believe. And the precious blood of Christ cleanses every man, woman, and child who receives Jesus from their sin. It is not dependent upon our color. It is not dependent upon our culture. It is not dependent upon where we call home in this day and age. The heavenly city is not divided. The heavenly city has gates open to all who will come. The heavenly city stands as a beacon for the people of God made up from every tribe, nation, language, tongue. Thanks be to God. And this beautiful city, she is measured, glorious, known by the Lord. See, as we read through this, we see that the city is, is described as a, a giant cube shape. We see that in verse 15 on down. The one who spoke with me, says John, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city, verse 16, lies four square. Its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. That's about 1,400 miles. Its length and its width and its height are equal. It's, it's the shape of a cube. And here we see that, that this is not a, a literal city. This is a picture of what it's going to be like. This is symbolic. Because if this city were to be a literal one, it would be about the half the size of the United States of America. But instead, this image given to us again comforts us. Because this city, every inch of it is measured. It is known by the Lord. The people of God cannot slip through his fingers. And look at the protection and the safety in this city. In verse 17, we're told that this angel measured its wall. It was 144 cubits, over 200 feet thick. And the wall was built of jasper. The city, pure gold, like clear glass. And then in verse 19, the The foundations are described, adorned with every kind of jewel, jasper and sapphire and chrysolite and and jacinth and amethyst. And verse 19 and 20, the, the beauty, the dazzling beauty of the bride of Christ is what comes through. My friends, I pray today that as we hear all of this, as the word of God speaks about us, men and women of faith who've received Christ and 
and are part of this city. May we hunger for this day. May we long for the day that we're we're not out cutting our grass and thinking our little patch of Balmahinch is all that we've got. But may we long for the day that this all comes to be. When Christ returns, when the old is gone, and when the city of God comes and takes its place on this new earth. But if we think the church described here is beautiful, the most glorious aspect of the new Jerusalem isn't the beauty of the walls, but it is the reality of the one who dwells in the city. You see, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. We're told that there's no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no temple. You get that? No longer will we see through a veil, through a glass, darkly. No longer. No longer will we say, oh, I'm, I'm going to church, I'm going to worship, or oh, I can't wait that we get back to church, and this isolation is all over. No longer will any of that be the case, and why not? Because the Lord will dwell with his people. Again, that covenantal language, the Lord will dwell with his people. He will be in the midst of his people. Eden will be restored and God once again will walk amongst his people. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? What do we talk about when we think of heaven? We, we, we say things like, uh, will, will we play football there? Will we? No idea. Will, will, we, will we talk to each other? Will, will I see Moses and down the street and go and speak to him? I think you will, yes. But we talk about those things, don't we? What will we wear? Will we be naked like we were in Eden? What age will I be resurrected? All that stuff. Will I get my hair back? We talk about stuff that, quite frankly, my brothers and sisters, is, is not going to mean very much when we realize the glory of this place. For the Lord is there. The Lamb is there. And by the light of the Lamb, the nations will walk, verse 24. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. I've read about this verse, and indeed verse 26, about how they will bring into the city their glory and the honor of the nations. I've, I've read about this meaning that perhaps all the, the rich cultural heritage and legacy of all of the world's peoples will be brought to bear in the, the new heavens and the new earth. What an amazing thing that would be, if true. But the Lord is there. The Lord is there to light the way. The Lord is there to protect, although protection will not be necessary because the enemies will be gone. The Lord is there. And because the Lord is there, as we read in verse 25, the gates will never be shut today and they will never be shut by night. Why? Because there will be no night. The time of darkness and the time of, of fear and the time of locking the doors and the time for hiding your money down behind a radiator and under your bed, all of that time is gone. No night in the great city because the Lord is there. The Lord is there. My brothers and sisters, there's nothing better than this. This is our destination. This is our heavenly home. I just cannot wait. It's not to say that I want a life that is cut short. I've said in these sermons before about the things that I'm looking forward to. It's not to say that I want a life that is cut short. But when you look at all of the world around us, when you consider the bleak nature of the world before us, when you watch the headlines, when you see a man losing his life with a, a knee on his neck. When you see looting and rioting and burning in the streets. When you hear the stories from every corner of this world about how the church is hated and despised. Oh, what a day it will be when this day comes. To be known and named and numbered and to walk with Jesus, what a privilege that is going to be. 
Friends, heaven is our home. I know we say it, oh, the best is yet to come. But may we say it and may we believe it. Heaven is our home. And truly the best is yet to come. My friends, here's my Christian hope. If I were to die today, my soul is made perfect. And it immediately goes to be with Jesus. Which is, as Paul says in Philippians 1 and 23, better by far. We call this the intermediate state. Christians who die before the return of Christ, their souls are made perfect and they go to be with Jesus. And make no mistake, that's not like second best. Nobody in heaven right now is sitting about thinking, oh, this, this isn't very good. Your brothers and sisters in the faith who have gone on before you are at peace. They are at rest with Christ. They are in bliss with Jesus. They sing his praise even now as part of the church triumphant, the intermediate state. But when Christ comes back, when all things are made new, he will raise us again to life. It is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, this mortal body must put on immortality. We long for that day. The intermediate state is glorious, but it's not the full picture. We long for the final state. When Christ returns and when the church of Jesus Christ, the new Jerusalem, the city of God, inherits the earth and walks with Jesus forevermore. Many of you know how much I love home. Many of you know what I think of the glorious streets of the glorious east. Twenty years ago when I was studying at Jordanstown, I hated Jordanstown. Many of you will say, oh, it's part of Belfast, isn't it? Well, it wasn't part of East Belfast. I had to go to Jordanstown, and if it was wet outside, I didn't bother going to Jordanstown. And that maybe explain why I did really, really badly in my first degree. But I remember getting the train home from Jordanstown, and I was so excited. I was going home. I was going home to East Belfast and I would put on Simon and Garfunkel, Homeward Bound, and I would listen to it and it would be nearly tears in my eyes. Homeward Bound, I wish I was Homeward Bound. My friends, by faith, we are Homeward Bound. And it isn't East Belfast we're going to, but it's heaven. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Come quickly. We want to go home. You are 
And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with us all today and forevermore. Amen.